fan. Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego. Providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, good morning and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey. Just about 8.02 on Saturday morning. Great to have you here this Saturday morning and every Saturday morning. Talking about your money, your investments, the economy, all financial things to help you make you a smarter investor. With me is Chase. Good morning, Chase. Good morning. A lot of things to talk about this morning. Gosh, and the show goes by so quick, so let's just uh, get right into it. I want to talk about uh, recently the Securities Exchange Commission, which is also known as the SEC, passed a proposal that would force hedge funds and private equity funds to provide basic disclosures to their investors and guard against conflicts. Now, on a recent Sunday segment uh, with KSI, I point out that when working with private equity funds, investors who are individuals or pension plans cannot see behind the curtain. Now, the, the, the SEC is pushing for private funds, also called private equity funds, uh, to provide quarterly statements detailing fund performance, fees, expenses, as well as manager compensation. Funds would also have to undergo annual audits to place a check on asset valuation estimates, which are often calculated or used to calculate fund manager fees. Yeah, the other <coughs> thing we look at here, too, is private funds hold more than $18 trillion in gross assets. In January, SEC examiners highlighted compliance deficiencies in private funds, saying that managers sometimes give investors misleading information about their performance to charge higher fees. <laughs> Shocker there. I can't say I'm surprised, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I do give two thumbs up to the SEC for this because private equity funds have enjoyed for too long the advantage of not showing what they're doing behind the scenes, which has been an unfair advantage compared to public, public equity management. Uh, my re recommendation, again, is and it has been for years, if you're looking at investing in private equity, you know, pass on that and look for an investment firm that shows you what they're doing as upfront about their compensation and management fees along with what is held in the portfolio. And, and, and Chase, I think this is so important because of the fact that, you know, especially now, <clears throat> you're seeing like it was at Thursday, the market's way down, then Friday they rebounded, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but with an equity fund, you don't see what's going on behind the scenes and you don't know and again, we've talked about, I think you said, like, uh, Foot Locker's down, what, 30%. I, I looked at DraftKings, gosh, uh, one year they're down 61%. When these private equity funds have those type of investments, which they do, they're private, but they still have the same thing, it's not right that the investor can't see what is actually going on because eventually what could happen if that continues, they could lose a lot of money because they just can't make it up, or the money could be tied up for five, maybe even ten years. <laughs> and sometimes... I'm going to say it's better for the investor than not to see. see. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, I mean, I, I do want to be clear. We're there for our clients. I mean, we took a couple of phone calls, a couple of mm -hmm. emails this past week with, with the whole situation. We'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly with uh, Russia and Ukraine. But, you know, you know, we'd rather be up front, have our clients see what's going on. And, and yes, oh, my gosh, things were down. But we're not, we don't panic about it. We, we talk to our clients about owning the business. It's the same concept as private equity that we're looking long term. But the unfortunate part is people can see that and they panic over it. With private equity, they don't. Right. And it, I'm saying it's a benefit, 
but it's really not because you just need to understand that you should look at it and not worry about it because it doesn't matter if you're in a private equity fund or if you have you know public stocks in the portfolio that you can see you can't panic over it right in private right. equity <coughs> you're forced not to panic because you're not allowed to but you really are hindering yourself because you're you're paying these hidden expenses and you can't even see what's going on that is what you're saying is dangerous and i completely agree i, I kind of went off on a, a different <laughs> tangent here but i'm not saying it's a positive long term i'm saying that the the mentality that people have with private equity is the positive side of things yeah and then i look at the other side and, and again i've been for over 40 years talking about education for people that's what the smart investing show is about to educate people and we tell people when they come in for consultations you're going to have losing months losing quarters losing years that's going to happen when, when you're investing that's the reality this private equity oh it's okay well no behind the scenes you don't know what's going on and what worries me, again, you could waste five or 10 years, even longer, they said some of these funds go for, thinking you have something when you really don't. Because we have seen companies go down and not come back because of high debt, because of the product's not good any longer, uh, you know, cash flow's not there. But you don't see that with private equity. So I, what I think is going to happen down the road, and we know that across the country, some pension funds, uh, public pension funds, like uh, for the cities and the counties and states, actually have some problems. And they're seeing more money go into private equity and hedge funds, which I think is a big mistake because I think that it's going to hurt them more down the road, especially if they start having to paying out from those. Well, two thoughts here is, number one, I think they've done that because rather than getting into the stock market, they know they can't be in bonds to meet their obligations. Yeah. So they're looking for other sources, but I just don't know why they don't look to stocks. But I was going to say the other thing I was, I think I figured out how I wanted to say my initial thought. If people looked at the stock market like they do with private equity and real estate, you would do far better in the stock market. <laughs> it's just that long-term perspective of, oh, I'm not going to sell during downturns. But for some reason with stocks, you panic. You, you panic. Real estate, private side. equity, you don't. Right. And again, it's because it's not you know, marked uh, a value uh, every 10 seconds, we'll call it. <laughs> Every millisecond. Um, every millisecond, yeah. I was trying to be generous there. But it, it, that is the big difference is that you don't see that. And I think, hey, it's okay to see that. We tell people when they come through our office that even on these high you know, volume days like on Thursday, uh, on average only about 0.6% of the volume is being traded. And a lot of that's coming from these traders, the high-frequency traders. So you have to understand that, hey, I own a food company. I own a insurance company. I, I, I own a consumer cyclical company. Whatever it may be, you own that business. You can't worry about the short-term uh, daily movements. And, and I will say out of over 700 clients, I think we only got three calls, I think, on yeah. Thursday. Which is, and again, that's, that's because we try to explain you know, in our client events that we do and, and the emails that we send out to people, uh, what's going on. So, so again, I'm, I'm really against, have been, you know, against especially private equity because I think it's a, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors type investment. I hate when I see people, oh, yeah, I'm in private equity. It, it's kind of like it has this nice thing like, oh, I'm so special. Well, I don't think you're very special being in private equity. I think you're going to have some problems. Well, and we've kind of seen too in the past where I guess isn't private, it could be considered private equity, but like alternative investments as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think the problem is that people kind of get sold on this idea that it's, oh, it's for the rich. Right. And, you know, <clears throat> oh, well, the wealthy people do it, so I should be doing it too. And, and the other thing is, I mean, I, I go back to the, this Proton Center that we were talking to a potential client about. And they were blinded by, like, the performance and the excitement around it. And, again, you don't see the valuation right. of what that Proton Center was worth. 
couple couple of years later, we talked to her and she said, I, I lost everything. Yeah. And yeah. that is what is scary is also, what do you mean it's gone? It goes from, you know, a million dollar investment to zero. <laughs> it doesn't go from a million to 700,000 to 500,000 to 400,000 to zero. Yeah. It goes from a million to zero. <laughs> that is what is very scary. And, and I can't count the number of people that have come to my office over the past 40 years that have, have lost money on private real estate deals. Yeah. It, it just happens a lot. Oh, it's real estate safe. It's not safe because it's a private deal that you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So it's just something I'm, and, and again, the SEC is there for guidance. Uh, we have been audited twice by the SEC. Uh, no fines, nothing else. Uh, and again, I appreciate, I sounds kind of funny, appreciate them coming in. And I never have a problem because we always try to do the right thing. And I'll probably never be a billionaire, but that's okay. I, I enjoy what I've done for 40 years, and I hope I can do it for another 40 years. I guess that'd be kind of a long time, but uh, see what happens with <coughs> medical technology. Right, there we go. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about it. It is uh, almost March here, and I'm sure people are either thinking about uh, their tax returns or filing their tax returns or have done it already. But did you have problems reaching the IRS uh, last year? Uh, you wouldn't have been alone, as the IRS has just uh, 16,000 workers. As surprising that number fielding 240 million calls. Now, do the math, that's about 15,000 each. Part of the problem came from new complications, which include the stimulus payments. <laughs> that's a lot of phone calls. <laughs> that's not, man, they had to be kind of bored, their ear must hurt. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's not like they're spread out either, you know? No. <laughs> they yeah, probably come in the hot call. parts during yeah. the day. I mean, <laughs> But uh, we also look to uh, this helped create an increase in math errors. I know my sister got one. She's like, I don't know what this means. You know? <laughs> and that's the problem is a lot of the people that don't know enough about finances and taxes and things like that, you're kind of tasked with this big problem, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that was something that created more complications. And also to those math errors, they rose to $11 million last year on those 2020 returns, which compares to $1.9 million in the prior year. And one thing I look at here too is with the addition of the child tax credit in 2021, I am assuming this year's tax returns will also see an elevated amount of math errors because I think that's gonna be even more complicated than the uh, stimulus payments. Oh yeah, well, we're starting to hear about that already. And again, we talked about it, I think uh, in July of last year, like this is gonna be a problem. And people just think, oh, this is great. I got, I got money, no, no problem. And I'm like, what? It was a credit, and and now you owe money. I, that's gonna be the problem. Then people gonna owe money, and they may not have that money in the bank to pay it. Well, I mean, that's the silly thing about it is, the IRS was never really meant to be a payment distribution system. Yeah, it was a tax collection system. So to task them with these new tasks is is really, uh, I'd say, difficult for a government agency. And, and the other thing I look at too, with the child tax credit in particular, is this is something that was given out monthly, and then all of a sudden, oh, no, if you didn't get enough, well, now you're supposed to get that on your tax return, or if you got too much, now yeah. you got to pay it back. I mean, it, it's quite frankly, I think it could be a, a mess. I'm very interested to see how it works out this tax it, season. And, and actually, we said that, uh, what, the 240 million calls that they're fielding those, plus you put this other stress on them, and now you got to do this. I mean, it is a problem, and I think it's going to be worse this year. Um, so hopefully you do your taxes right. Hopefully there's no good conflicts there. Uh, make sure that you're you're very patient. But it, it, it's going to be, I think, uh, uh, worse this year than 2020 was. Well, and I think there's an elevated amount of 2020 tax returns that are still being finalized as well. So I think they're still working on 2020 in some cases, and now you're starting to get the 2021s. Right. 
I mean, gosh, that is that's a tough tough spot to be in. And I, I know I, I got my taxes in pretty early. It came back quickly. I, I got mine done already. Uh, for 2021? For 2021, yeah. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm all good to go. I was worried after I saw this. I was like, I better get it done. <laughs> when did you file your tax return? Uh, let's see. I filed it last week. Last week. You, oh, so you don't have to get your re, your refund yet? Oh no, you don't. You're not no, getting refund. I'm right? not getting a refund. I'm, <laughs> I'm the lucky one that gets to pay the federal government more money. <laughs> okay. All right. Before we go to the next topic, uh, I do want to open the phone line for that unbiased, no strings attached, formal opinion about what you want to talk about. Eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Uh, and Chase, uh, we talked before about uh, reasons not to use stop loss orders. And we had a good example of why not last week. Now, due to the invasion uh, in Ukraine of Russia or from Russia, uh, the markets open was down dramatically on Thursday morning. Throughout the day, it was down. And then after the president spoke, the markets rebounded. And then Friday was a big day. So, you know, that's why we kind of talk about this. Yeah, and, and the way you go, look at it is, had you been stopped out of your position when the market opened in the morning, you would have missed anywhere between a five to 10% rebound in some cases. So instead of trying to falsely protect your investments with stop loss orders, understand the investment and don't worry about short-term volatility. And, and, and I got a comment on my Facebook kind of asking for more clarity on how stop loss orders work. So I wanted to kind of clarify that sure. for people. Is let's say a stock's trading at $100 and you have a stop loss order in at 90. Well, if it falls down to 85 during the day, your order would be placed and you'd sell out about $90 a share. The problem that we're saying is, let's say during the day it rebounds from $85 a share up to $95 a share. Well, you were sold out at 90, you missed out on that bounce back. So you're kind of selling low and then do you buy high again? Yeah. <clears throat> that is the problem with the stop loss is the trading tool. And if you're a trader, yeah, maybe you want to try and implement some stop loss orders, but we're not traders here on the Smart Investing Show. No. We're long-term investors. I don't care about the volatility that happened Thursday. You know, I was talking to a client, and I, I was saying, uh, I remember you always tell a story about, I think it was during the, the China 2015 incident where it fell like 5% and you were on the news and you said, well, what did you do during that, Brent? Well, I looked up at the TV, and then I went back to my computer. Yeah. There's no point no of point panicking during that. And the other thing too is stop losses that, uh, and again, there's stop loss, uh, limit orders, there's different things you can do, but if you just put a stop loss on there, and again, I'll use your example, uh, and it was like 90, but if it opened up at 80 or 85, what it may be, that may be the price you get. Yeah. So it's gonna lock in an even lower loss. So you really have to understand what you're investing into because if you're not, uh, it's like going to Vegas. And okay, well, if it's on you know red, uh, I'll double my bet, but it's on black. I mean, it's just these little tricks supposedly that work out, but they don't work out. And now if you did have stop loss orders on Thursday, you sold out, well now it went back up on Friday. Now you have the question, well, is it gonna go back down again, do I buy? What if it goes up even higher on Monday or Tuesday? What if Ukraine uh, is looking pretty good? I mean, you, there's so many factors to look into and you could be out forever because it just went up from there. It, it, that's why we don't like to use stop loss orders. And we've been asked over my career many, many times, and I've, I've never, ever used one. And it, it's really so contradictory to our philosophy because if we like to stock at 100, we would like it at 80. A good, you know? good, a good point. <laughs> so if you don't like the stock at 80 and you like it at 100, well, well, that's a big problem in terms of your philosophy. So that's why it, it just – 
it doesn't fit into the philosophy of investing into companies because many times when the prices go down, that means the company is even a greater value at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like a, a false sense of security that, oh, okay, well, you know, I won't lose more money. But it, you could lose more money because, again, as I said, it could open lower than you thought your limit was. And then also, too, it could go up after that. Now, like, well, now I missed it. I better get back in. I get back in at maybe 110 because I thought I missed it. I like the company. And then it falls to 100. Then you have, again, another limit. <laughs> so it can just be this thing to where eventually, like, I've lost half my money. Yeah. You know? So that's why, again, we don't recommend stop-loss orders. Uh, and a good example was Thursday, Friday uh, of this week. And I, I was going to say, too, just <clears> a little <throat> bit more on the Russia-Ukraine situation. I mean, you bring up a great point is nobody knows how it's going to play out. And, and you play this doomsday scenario in your head. It very well could be over next week. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not guaranteeing not it's going to be over next week. It's a possibility. Right. And now, like I said, the problem is you sell out and things are over. Again, as you said, what do you do now? Do you go back in? Do you wait? Right. I mean, you're in this limbo land where... <laughs> If you look at owning the businesses, yes, we had financial companies that went down on Thursday because there was that flight to safety that sent the 10-year note lower. I'm still confident by next year the 10-year note's going to be higher, so the financial should be yeah. totally fine. You look at the energy companies, they did well. <laughs> energy companies might pull back a little bit if, if Russia now actually starts to back off because oil spiked. So that's the benefit of having that diversified portfolio is there's going to be things that, that benefit from situations like this, and there's going to be things that are hurt by things like this. So that's why we don't panic during that because we have good companies in different industries. Yeah, it, it really, the only thing that increases is your emotional stress. That's yeah. what actually increases doing stop loss order or trading. When you own businesses, you do very well. You will have fluctuations, but you just say, no, this business will be here today, tomorrow, and uh, five years from now. And, and I do want to kind of point out, I, I was very relieved this morning. I was reading an article about how actually there was two state banks in China that were limiting the funding to Russia. Oh, good. That is what honestly scares me the most is <laughs> China. And everybody used to watch the U.S. Right. to see what they're doing in situations like this. I now look to see what China's doing because they're the ones that I think can really create some issues. Because if they were to invade Taiwan, if they were to completely side with Russia on that, that'd be a big problem. But China also does rely on us and a lot of other places for their exports. So there's still a little bit of a tie to us where I think they know, well, we, we can't leave the Western Europe and the United States behind and just sided with Russia. That that gave me a lot more confidence kind of this weekend. And, and also, too, yeah, you're right. Because with China, when I said, oh, good, because they're limiting the, the funds, uh, they were silent. They hadn't said anything. So that's the first positive move we've seen from them because we were afraid of them backing up Russia. But it seems like they're not saying anything. And we do know that the relations with Russia and China have gotten better. But I think uh, there doesn't seem to be anyone around the world that is like, yes, Russia, go ahead. You're doing great because it's just... And I think Putin may, I don't want to get too political here, but Putin may just kind of realize, like, ooh, maybe this was a mistake. I shouldn't do this. So, but again, we'll see next week what happens. Markets could go up. They could go down. But, yeah, the stop-loss orders just don't work. Good example is Thursday, Friday. Uh, phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833 <laughs> One thing before we go to the calls, too, and I, and I want to talk about our workshop, is that I was thinking about my tax return. You know why it probably got filed so quickly? Why? Because I owe money. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> they yeah, probably, definitely. probably have red flags for yeah. <laughs> when yeah. people owe money. Oh, <laughs> refund, that's the green need to take some time to process you know, that. And, and again, we'll kind of go off the topic a little bit here, but I, you know, I believe that we know the national debt uh, hit $30 trillion. 
I think we're going to see, because this is now March, April, and so forth, I think we're going to see that reverse because I believe there's going to be a lot of money coming in from companies, from individuals, stock trades. Uh, I think we're going to have some big revenue numbers coming in that will make things look a little bit better. The question will be, can we stay in that course, or is the administration and, uh, I mean, everybody, are they going to say, oh, things are great again, let's spend more money. No, do not spend more money. Let's move on the right direction now and not start <laughs> spending more money. I wonder if Elon's already paid his $10.7 billion, too. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that's going to help out. Yeah, he, he should get, like, a gold medal or something. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. I'm not going get, to get political, but I, I will. Uh, with Elizabeth Warren, I forget what he said exactly, but he tweeted at her and was like, oh, I'm stopping by D.C. Should I go to the IRS and pick up my cookie for <laughs> <laughs> having the largest tax bill ever? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he should get a cookie. <laughs> All right. Uh, we, we are going to, you, you know, and we have— uh, we already have people signed up for this. I think we're getting close to being filled, but uh, we do want to make sure that uh, you know that there's a workshop on Thursday, uh, March 3rd at six o'clock in Scripps Ranch. Uh, it's it's it, you know this is now 2022. We got the the you know potential war going on here. Is it going to happen? Not going to happen. We're going to talk about how to invest in this uncertain year. We will discuss too th such things as why the index may not perform as you expect, how to take the emotions out of investing and avoid the roller coaster ride of investing and how to build a portfolio to weather the possible upcoming storm. So if you want to sit up for the workshop, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That is smartinvesting2000.com. Or call the office, speak with Priscilla. She gets you signed up. And we look forward to seeing you Thursday, <coughs> excuse me, March 3rd at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. So I'll talk about all these things to help you become a smarter investor, especially this year. And we're, we're excited because we were supposed to have one in January, but then the restrictions with uh, COVID kind of came back, yeah. so we had to postpone that one. So this will be our first one in uh, several months, so we're, we're really excited for it. Yeah, it's been, been, been a while, so yeah, we are excited about it, and I think we'll probably have a full capacity, but uh, we'll try to get as many in as we can. And I'm going to let people in on a little secret. We used to do these monthly, but we have shifted to doing these more on a quarterly basis, so um, you know we won't be doing one in April, so you know make sure you sign up if you want to come to the one in March. Exactly. All right, phone number is 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to Alpine and speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the Smart Investor over at Chase. How can we help you? Hey, good morning, guys. Once again, once again, uh, kudos on your private equity uh, discussion there. I absolutely agree. It's like, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I always look at how do I get out of this deal? Right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and actually, and I think there are ways to get out, but I think sometimes you might lose half of what you're invested trying to get out early. Yeah, there are here and there equity markets that'll that'll you know that'll trade you that'll give you a place to sell them, but it's like no, thank you. Yeah, exactly. pennies on the dollar. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, okay, great. What a deal. <laughs> well, how can I help you out there, Jim? Well, I'm continuing my pipeline uh, theme from next week, and APD is what I'm looking at for the for the dividend. Right. Thank you, Randy. Quiet, quiet, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> In my, uh, I got a guy getting in my car here. Sorry, guys. No problem. Oh, Yo, you're good. <laughs> Continuing my greed for the dividend checks, you know, and uh, hoping to see how it uh, works out. Okay. Well, well let's look right. at, uh, yep, let's look at the Enterprise Products Partners. Uh, symbol is EPD. Yep. They are in the oil and gas midstream industry. Uh, not much float on it, which is positive. It's only 1.9%. 
Uh, I'm surprised here. Institutional ownership is very low, 26.6%. I can't remember the last time I saw a company with such low institutional ownership. Uh, we do see a P.E. ratio looking pretty good, 11.3 versus 22.4. Price to sales, 1.3. That is below the industry at 1.4. Price to book value of 3.2. That's very good because the industry is at 43.5. And price to cash flow checks in at 6.6, also below the industry at 7.3. And we have a peg ratio, 1.1 versus 14.8. So the valuation ratio is looking pretty good for enterprise products partners. Now, we do see uh, the year growth on earnings were was 4.7%, not as good as the industry, up 14.1%. Sales, however, were up 34.1%, which was better than the industry at 277 They also do have a five-year growth rate better than the industry at 107 for the company versus 84 Now, here's your, your dividend, 7.8%. Uh, they used 100.3%. Their earnings to pay that out. So, again, we know that I believe they have to pay it about 90%. If this is the type of company I think it is, but still they're paying out 100%, that sounds kind of strange. So they could have to cut that dividend or there could be problems down the road. We do see that the uh, balance sheet got a current ratio of 1.1 versus 0.9, so that's good. Debt actually 120, a uh, little bit high, but we're okay with that. Not okay with the industry at 280% debt to equity. Now, we do see a net profit margin, 10.8. That does beat the industry at 7. Return on equity, 15.5 versus 9.7. And return on capital, 9.4, about the same as the industry at 9.8. Chase, what do you got going forward for the company? You know, so I'm sitting here thinking, with the high dividend payout for these uh, limited partnerships, I, I would need to understand more of the accounting for them and, and how that's mm -hmm. possible. Because I, I compare it again to a REIT. When we look at REITs, I can understand why they pay out 90 100%, 110% sometimes, and it's sustainable. Because if you look at the FFO, there's so much depreciation with real estate that's a non-cash expense that allows them to still have cash flow to pay a dividend. Is there a lot of depreciation with limited partnerships? Where is the discrepancy between earnings and cash flow to justify that payout ratio? So that's something I would want to understand more, I guess, with partnerships, because we don't really own any partnerships. So. No, well, we, we don't. You really got to kind of dig deep into those mm -hmm. numbers to see, does this company really make sense or not? Yeah, yep. So let's continue looking at the numbers. Though. The current price here, $23.80. 52-week high, well, that's $25.69. And the 52-week low, $20.42. It's had a great start to the year, up 10.5%, while the index is down 8% for the year for the S&P 500. Uh, good size company here, $51 billion market cap. If I go forward to December 2023, I see estimated earnings per share, $2.34. Would give us a target sell price of $38.84. So, I mean, the valuations look very good on it, and I'm optimistic about that. The other thing I'll say is the balance sheet looks much better on this one, Jim, than the one we called in last week about. So, I like it. Again, it goes back to the same conversation we had about the partnerships last week, though, uh, and understanding complexities with them. And, and I try and pull up something beyond the one-year time frame here, Jason. For some reason, I can't find the button to actually go out beyond one year, but I'm pretty confident in, in saying that I don't think this has seen the appreciation we have on other regular oil companies. Uh, and I say that, Jim, because you get a big dividend, but I don't think you get the big appreciation. And, and we had a, a company in our portfolio from the low to the high. I think it's up, I don't know, 100, 200%, whatever the number may be. But we've seen that with Chevron. We've seen that with Exxon. Um, I don't think you'd see it with these companies. Now, the, the question is, will oil go to 150? Will go back down to 50? Uh, we don't know. But um, I, 
you just won't get the big appreciation out of these these type of uh, enterprise product partners type funds. You'll get the dividend, but not that. And also, again, I remember to talk to your tax person about the taxability of these outside of a retirement account. Yeah, no, I just I don't look at them, you know, so much for the growth as for the cash flow. And, yeah. Uh, I just look at it a little bit like Valero. You know, they don't drill for anything, but they're definitely involved in the industry. Yeah, but keep, keep in mind with Valero, they, they you get a, a nice dividend. Well, you did when it was lower, and a lot of appreciation on companies like Valero. Where I, I just don't know why I can't find the the the, the, the thing to reset this. Cre- did you find anything, Jason? Because I want to go back the like three, three year years. return was like sixteen percent. Three year return sixteen. Yeah. So, and I think if you had compared that to an Exxon or a Chevron, I think it would have seen a much better return over three year or maybe two year. But I my, my point, Jim, here is that yeah, I know you kind of look at the cash flow. But, you know, we like to look for companies that are undervalued because it'd be nice to get the cash flow plus some good appreciation there over the next, we'll say, three to five years. I just don't think you would see that on these uh, enterprise product partners. Already? Yeah, well, yeah, that's okay with me, frankly. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, good talking to you. Have a great day. Yeah, I think I'm going to come sign up for your, uh, your workshop here uh, shortly just uh, so we can be more than a voice on the phone, you know? Sure. We would love to have that. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, folks, as always, and have a marvelous day. You too, Jim. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go to uh, San Marcos and speak with Phil. Phil, you're on the Smart uh, Smart Investing with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey, good, guys. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you doing, Phil? Hey, good. Hey, uh, I got the uh, email earlier today, and I'm not worried whatsoever and not panicking. I actually look at it as uh, buying opportunities, especially for the one company you named out in that uh, email. <laughs> but what I've been, I haven't been able to do any diligence on the following company. I was wanting to get uh, your take on it. Uh, T Row Price, T R O W. Yes, it, you know, it's funny, when I first saw that pop up, I thought, is T-Row Price public? But I guess they are public, so you can invest into an asset management firm. Coming again is a T-Row Price Group, symbol is T-R-O-W. Uh, they are an asset management company, that's the industry. A uh, little bit, uh, not bad short, but about 5% short, which is kind of surprising to me compared to the other companies, but uh, nothing more you there. Uh, institutional ownership, 75%. Uh, P.E. ratio 11.1, that's good, but not as good as the industry at 8.7. Price of sales 4.3 versus 2.9. Price of book value 6.1 versus 11.4. And price of cash flow checks in at 9.6. Very good compared to the industry at 24. Now you got a nice peg ratio here as well, 1 versus 4.7. Earnings per share growth over one year up 32.9%, but the industry is up 58%. And sales for T. Row price increased uh, over the year by 20%, but the industry is up 34.9%. We do see a five-year growth rate uh, estimate from the analysts here of 12.6. That is above the industry growth at 9. They do pay a dividend, nice dividend here, 3.3%, and only use 31% of their earnings to pay that out. Taking a look at the balance sheet, we've got a current ratio of 11.8 versus 3.6. That's extremely high. I wonder if there's something on there that is causing to be so high. I would really want to check into that to have that much current uh, ratio. And even the quick ratio, which is just cash, is 11.8, could be because it's an asset management company. Uh, debt to equity, zero, 
versus 100% uh, for the industry. That's a positive. Net profit margin, very good, 42% versus 25.5. And return equity for T-Row price, 36.8 versus 17.1. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for T-Row price, well, it's $145.26. The 52-week uh, high, though, I was shocked by this, $224.55. So we've seen a big pullback there. And 52-week low, that's $134.13. Talk about that pullback. Year-to-date return for T-Roll price down 26.1%. So I, I'm guessing there? they must have had some questionable earnings or forecasts or something going forward because that, that's a, a pretty big downturn for uh, T-Roll price here. Uh, looking forward, though, for T-Roll. I go out to December 2023, I see estimated earnings per share of $12.79. Does, does give us a, a pretty attractive target sell price here of $212.31. So the value looks to be there for T. Rowe Price. Uh, the balance sheet was strange, I'm guessing, again, because it's a financial company. Mm -hmm. But one thing I, I, I'd want to understand more about with this company is, again, I know they have the mutual funds. Is that where they get all their money from? How, how do they make right. their money? Do they have other products? Do they have other revenue streams? Or is it just from mutual fund fees that's just a question i have for yeah and these are things we do we try to come up with questions for you to find out if it's good investment i did kind of look at it. i was kind of curious how they could have such a high for some reason in august late august they did peak about 220 they fell to back down to 180 or 190 then they went back up in uh, november back up to 220 and now as you said around 140 145. uh one thing worries me with this too is in addition to what else do they do how many index funds do they have? Mm -hmm. Because I think that could be a problem as well. Y you really have to understand this business, I think, because uh, it could be a, a, a good buy at this level, but I'd want to know what they're doing to make their money because there could be problems there behind the curtain. I always get a little bit nervous too about the future of mutual funds. And it, it seems like, I mean, we don't employ any mutual funds or equity mutual funds at our firm. And it looks like more people are kind of shifting to the ETF type thing, which is this going to hurt a company like T-Row? Maybe they do have the ETFs. I'm pretty sure they do. Right. But it could come at a, a lower expense ratio or there could be that race to lower fees where now that's starting to ding their management fees. And if they're very heavily reliant on management fees for the mutual funds, that could limit their upside potential going forward as well. And I do question going forward. I, th I think the next uh, five to 10 years will not be as pleasant as the last five to 10 years were. Uh, so I'm kind of curious how the ETFs will do in that time frame. Will active management from the mutual funds perform better than ETFs? Um, so I, I just don't know, Phil, as we're talking here, I, I don't know if I'd want to buy an asset management company um, unless they had something really special there. And I know T. Rowe Price have been around for a long time. I think they're rather large but I just don't know if I'd feel comfortable holding them uh, in my portfolio. Already? Yeah, yeah, I was, you know, the reason why I called was I was monitoring them on that big drop. Chase, I think you mentioned 26%. And, you know, I look for opportunities to buy on the low, but I don't want to fall into the trap of just because they were 190 or 223 months ago, it's an automatic buy. and was wondering if you guys had any more uh, insight on them. So thanks for the info. Yeah, there's a lot more research to do on it because again, you want to really understand how they're managing money. How much, how many, how many funds do they have in ETS? How many do they have in index funds? Is this something that going forward is going to be a growing business or perhaps a flat to declining business uh, as the markets and the indexes perhaps don't perform as good as the last five to 10 years? Already? All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. You too, Phil. Thanks for calling. Bye bye. 
All right, that does over the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. I want to bring up the workshop again because it is this Thursday, March 3rd at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. Sitting is limited. And again, if you're kind of concerned on the markets now, you're not sure what's going to happen, this is what we talk about. This is what you hear on the radio show. We go into a lot more detail at these workshops to explain how to look at these when we say, well, look at, you know, look a little bit deeper into the company. We show you how to look deeper into the company. What about the target prices? We show you how to do the target prices. We show you what not to do, what you should be doing. It is free, but what you have to do is sign up for it. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Or call the office, 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. Speak with Priscilla. She'll get you signed up. But again, it is this Thursday, March 3rd at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. Uh, don't delay. We'll love to see you there. Yeah. And, and I know we have uh, a call there. I did want to bring up real quick, uh, you know, when we were talking to Phil about T. Rowe and, and looking for the, those big decliners, that's always a great way to look for stocks. Right. But you always have to be careful you don't get into value trap. You know, we were talking about Foot Locker falling 30%. Foot Locker scares me, too, because, you know, at first I was like, ah, maybe. But then you start thinking about it. They're the middleman. And right. I think what happened, I just saw briefly some some deal with Nike. Looks like it fell through. Oh, that could be work. a huge issue. And that's the problem where Nike says, you know, we're just going to start selling direct. We don't really want to go through Foot Locker anymore. You got to be careful of trying to find things that have big falls. And it's like, wow, this is a great idea. And then you get into what's known as a value trap. You want to, again, think through it as we kind of were talking with Phil. And maybe two rows okay, but you got to think through that process. And one thing we've talked to people before as well is that you have to look to see what uh, their biggest customers are. Mm -hmm. And with Foot Locker, if Nike, I'm just throwing up numbers, is 30% of their business and Nike says no one kind of using it any longer, that's a big problem for them. So you've got to understand the business. These are things we talk <laughs> about. These are things, again, we talk about the workshop as well to understand these businesses. That's not so much of a fixable problem. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, we look for <laughs> fixable problems. You lose Nike and there's, again, we're still on numbers here, 25% of your sales. That is not really a fixable problem. That's a, a yeah. business-altering problem. Yes, yes, and, and it would take them years to recover from that. And there's not like, okay, we'll go to Under Armour, that will replace it. No, I mean, Under Armour, I think it's the second biggest one, as my guess. But they already sell Under Armour. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. So you can't, even, it, you can't even increase much with that. But, again, the demand for Nike is there. Um, so, yeah, part of a business. And again, these are things we talk about the workshop to help you understand more of what we talk about and say, well, go go look over here and, and do more research. Um, all right, uh, 833-288-0973. You know, uh, let's go to Harrison. I know we're going a little bit early, but I, I do see we got uh, Carl uh, calling in and uh, someone else calling in. But uh, hang with us. We're, we're going to get to you. Good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Hey, guys. Doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I like the topic today because it's something that uh, I think a lot of people ask this question. It's a very simple question, but I think it's a very important question, and that is, what is a CFP? What is a CFP? So a certified financial planner, there's a couple things. Um, first, in order to become a CFP, you have an education requirement where you have to have a degree, and you also have to have some additional financial planning coursework done after that's been approved by the CFP board. So you've got your education requirement. You have to take and pass the exam. Um, you have to have a minimum of three years experience working in some type of financial planning capacity. And then you have to adhere to the CFP ethics um, agreement. So uh, 
couple different things there. As far as the exam goes, there's eight different topics that it focuses on. There's professional conduct, the general principles of financial planning, risk management and insurance planning, investment planning, tax planning, retirement savings and income planning, estate planning, and the psychology of financial planning. So the reason I want to bring that up is there technically is an investment planning portion that uh, CFPs have to know about, but I've gone through this. I am a CFP. In that investment planning portion, there's really nothing about actually analyzing investments. It's more about what types of accounts out are there, what types of assets are there, how are they treated from a tax perspective. There's a little bit about options in there. But um, there's really not anything that's actually about analyzing and building a portfolio based on, you know, um, intrinsic value and, and that type of thing. So, you know, sometimes people talk to you guys, Brent and Chase, and say, oh, well, are you guys CFPs? But at the end of the day, you know, you're not CFPs and you don't need to be to manage your investment portfolio because those are really two completely different things. Um, it, it seems like most CFPs out there now have – they use this cover of, oh, I'm a CFP, I'm a fiduciary, you have to do in your best interests. And what that has evolved into is their financial plan or their recommendations are just, well, you just need to spend less, save more, and then buy this insurance or buy this annuity. Um, <laughs> you know, there's not really a whole lot of value going on there. Nobody, nobody needs to be told that they need to spend less and save more. That's, you know, that's, that's obvious. Um, <laughs> so I've, uh, Throughout my career, I've, I've met with, at this point, thousands of people, so I've got a pretty good idea of what people want and what they don't want and what's important to them. And since I don't sell anything and I don't gather assets and invest assets myself, I can really just focus on what is important to people. And, and what I've found is for younger people, the, the most important thing is they want to find ways to build wealth more efficiently through tax reduction and incorporating, in many cases, stock investments and real estate investments and how those two work together. Um, and on for older clients, it's much more about structuring your assets and your cash flow to give you options to retire sooner with more income and pay less tax on that income. So that's really what financial planning is supposed to be. That's what being a CFP is all about. But um, unfortunately, I'd say probably 99% of us give the rest a bad name just because people focus on selling things and, and not actually providing value for the people they're working for. Yeah, and, and Harrison, it is kind of a shame because people do say, oh, well, CFP, you must be a, a great investment advisor. Uh, that is not the case. You kind of pointed out it's a very small part of what a CFP actually does. Again, I always call you the captain of the ship to where you look at everything, not just the investment part. Uh, and it's hard. It's in, I think it's impossible to do a good job at both, to, to, to do a financial plan for somebody and also manage your money wisely because it takes a lot. I mean, you, you know, Chase and I spend a lot of time analyzing it and doing the right thing. That, that's why we do well because that's all we focus on. And then you're part of our company where you actually do the financial planning for people. So it works out very well. And, and I think a lot of people have come to you and said, wow, I had a, a CFP before. He didn't do anything like what you're doing. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, you know, we went to the CFP in the past, we were sold this annuity, and it was the worst thing <laughs> I've ever done financially. Uh, I, I literally heard that yesterday. I hear that all the time. And you're right. After I'm talking with people, you know, they say no one's ever talked to about this type of stuff before is, you know, how taxes work, how we can actually 
reduce current and future tax liability, how we can grow our wealth more efficiently. Um, you know, those are the things that are important to people. And if we do that correctly, that's that's what the real value of financial planning is. Yeah, I was going to say, too, you brought up the great point about <clears throat> being a, a CFP and a fiduciary. And fiduciary has become such a prominent word in the industry. And I'm, I'm glad it has. It's a really important distinction that people should look at when they're looking at hiring somebody. But the scary part about the term fiduciary is it can be used to kind of hide behind it. What I mean by that is, you're right, you could be a CFP fiduciary, but then you could be a broker and sell products. Or you could also be a hybrid advisor where you are a fiduciary that manages money, but also you have your license to sell products. And which hat are you wearing? The same thing with the CFPs. You have to be careful and understand what capacity of fiduciary is that advisor you're looking at. Well, Harrison, a lot, a lot of great information yeah, there. So so thanks uh, for calling in. We'll, we'll see you on Monday. And uh, you have a great Saturday. Thanks, guys. We'll see you on Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. Right, again, that's uh, Harrison uh, Johnson. He is our CFP, our financial planner at uh, Wilson Asset Management. If you want to talk to him, call him at the office, 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. Or go to the website. You can get more information about him and our firm there, smartinvesting2000.com. That is smartinvesting2000.com. All right, let's go back to the phones. Let's go out to La Jolla and speak with Chad. Chad, you're in the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you out? All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Chase. Big fans. Thank uh, you. I was looking to buy Roku. Just wanted to get your opinion on that. Okay. And I know you had a couple up there, so you decided to go with Roku. So let's take a look at the Roku here. So you, you don't own it. You're looking at buying it, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Let's take a look at the Roku. And I know they have had a major fall, which Chase will kind of talk about. And it is kind of interesting because maybe some of these growth companies could now be shifting into the value space where you're getting some good value for it, which I think is probably what you're looking at. So it's going to be great to look at some of these growth companies, see if that is the case. And again, the company we're looking at is Roku. Their symbol is R-O-K-U. They are in the entertainment industry. Not a lot of short on it, about 5%. Institutional ownership, 76%. Uh, unfortunately, the P ratio is still pretty high here, 82 versus 27 for the industry. Price of sales, 7.2 versus 2.6. Price of tangible book value, 7.5 versus not material for the industry. And unfortunately, price of cash flow, also expensive, 87 versus 15.9. They do not have a peg ratio. The industry is at 3.1. Uh, no earnings. No earnings growth because there's no earnings there at all, it appears. Now, their sales growth is where the excitement is. It's 55.5%, well above the industry at 109 However, the analysts gave it a five-year earnings per share growth estimate of a negative 8.2 when the industry is 20.2. So the analysts are not very excited here. They don't pay a dividend. Looking at the balance sheet, looking pretty good. You got a current ratio of 4.2 versus one. A lot of liquidity there. That is positive. Uh, debt to equity is 0.2 or 20% versus 200% for the industry. So that's a positive. Looking at the net profit margin, 8.8% versus 10.8. That is good. Return on equity a little bit low, 8.8 versus 11%, and return on capital, 9.7 versus 8.6. All right, Chase, give us the numbers going forward, and where has the stock been? <laughs> yeah, so current price here for Roku, $139.61. I mean, gosh, 52-week high here, $490.76, and the low, $102.60. So year-to-date return down about 38.8%. If I go forward, though, unfortunately, to December 2023, I see estimated earnings per share of $0.44. Cents. Would give us a target sell price of $7.30. And 
And one thing we talk about a lot with these companies that, that concerns me is, is now you start to get away from the momentum type stock. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still not a value stock. So we talk about this limbo land where what type of investor is going to want Roku? And what I think could happen is you could get some bottom fishers, and we've kind of seen that where it fell to 102 as a low, now it's at 139. It's kind of got this dead cap bounce going towards yeah. it. But I, I was looking at Sam Adams as another example. That's one that fell dramatically last year. Yep. It went to like 400, bounced back to 500. Well, now it's back at 350. Oh. So yeah. you got to be careful getting back into these type of momentum stocks because if they don't garner that type of momentum, this thing could easily fall back under $100 a share because the value's still not there for it. And it could be there in years, but it's still not a value company. And, and Chad, I got to be honest, I don't understand the whole concept of Roku, but I know there's a lot of competition in entertainment and streaming and everything else. Uh, if I was going to invest in this company, I'd really want to understand what is their advantage over these other uh, companies? Well, they're like the platform. They're platform, not competing right. against Paramount or competing against Netflix. Right. They're hosting it. So, I, yeah, I'm curious, what is the potential headwinds for this company as right. well? But, but, I mean, you, you do have competition from, what, Apple? Um, I'm trying to think of some other names. Uh, actually, cable companies, they are competing yep. with this because they, they know that if they don't do something, they'll be out of business. So that's just to kind of look at how crowded is this field. Uh, and again, they're, they're going to earn, what, 2023, you said, what, 40 cents or something? 44, yeah. 44 <laughs> cents. It it's just is not there yet, so I'd, I'd be patient. Uh, I, I just don't see going forward momentum for this company. So I'd, I'd say keep watching it, but it's got a long way to fall before I'd say, yes, this is a great buy. All right, Chad? All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. That does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. And, again, I want to talk about the workshop coming up on Thursday, March 3rd. That is this this week, uh, this Thursday. Uh, we're not going to have another one probably until, like, I'm going to say probably June or so. So I'd recommend you sign up. And, again, with all the volatility going on in the markets, uh, we talk about different things with the debt, with the economy, what's going on with the, the uh, Ukraine situation. Uh, we just talked about how to look at these businesses. That is what we do at the workshop. We show you what we do. Uh, I've been managing money for over 40 years. We show you everything we do when we manage money for people. So it is a free workshop. Oh, and we'll also show you how to get that target buy price and target sell price as well. It is free. you got to sign up. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can call the office at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. Speak with Priscilla. She'll get you signed up. And look forward to seeing you Thursday, March 3rd at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. All right, let's go up to Oceanside and speak with Carl. Carl, you're on the Smart Investor Brent Chase. How can we help you out? A year ago, I bought Rattler RTLR around $10. It has gone up to about $13 and paid out a 7% dividend. I'm wondering, should should I hold on longer on this company? Okay. What is, what is your valuation on that company? All right. Well, well let's take a look at Rattler midstream uh, symbols rtlr uh, not a bad start here on the pe ratio here i do see oil and, and by the way they're in the oil and gas midstream industry uh institutional ownership is about 84 percent but again as i was saying the pe ratio not bad start 15.7 versus 22.4 price of sales 1.4 that is the same as the industry 
Price of book value, very good, 1.5, well below the industry at 43.5, and price of cash looking good at 2.2 versus 7.3. We got a peg ratio, very good as well, 0.9 versus 14.8. Now, over the past year, we have seen earnings increase by 12.1%, almost as good as the industry at 14.1. However, I see a problem here with the sales. They were down 4.3%. Industry up 27.7, so I don't know why in this time an energy company would see a decline in their sales. You'd want to understand that before you invest in the company. Their five-year growth rate does look pretty good, 13.9. That's above the industry at 8.4. They pay a dividend of $1.20 a year. That's 8.9% on the current stock price, so that's a pretty good uh, yield there you're getting. Look at the balance sheet. Current ratio, 3.9 versus 0.9. That's a positive. Debt to equity, 130 that's okay, but getting a little bit worrisome there. The industry is at 280. We do see a net profit margin, 12.3 versus 7. Return to equity, 9.1. Just about the same as the in industry at 9.7. Chase, what do you got going forward? Yeah, so current price here for Rattler Midstream, $13.52. Near its 52-week high of $13.87. And the 52-week global, that's $9.51. See, year-to-date, up about 19%, which again compares favorably to the S&P 500, which is down 8%. This is a, a pretty small company. The market cap is just $539 million. Ooh, wow. So you got to be careful because this thing can move and move quickly if institutional money decides to get in or out of uh, this business since it's so small. But if I go out to December 2023, uh, I do see estimated earnings per share of $1.11. What gives a target sell price at $18.43? Now, you got to be careful with that estimate because there is just two analysts, Ooh, which doesn't surprise me considering the size of this business. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Carl, about how much percent of your portfolio does this make up? Uh, not too much. I bought 2,000 shares at that time a year ago, and so far it went real good. I'm wondering right. if I hang in there. Or, or skip it. I made some profit on it. Yeah, I, I, I would say I would hang in there. I think I did point out, though, I am concerned why their sales went down 4%. I, I would want to check into that. If that checks out fine, I, I just don't understand why their sales will go down because if they go down again, this stock may have a different direction that starts going. I would, at that point in time, say get out of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, checking that, <clears throat> if that looks okay, then I'd probably say stay with the company. It looks pretty good. Get a nice dividend there. All righty. Okay, thank you. All right, Carl, have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, let's head out to San Diego and speak with Wayne. Wayne, you're in the Smart Vision with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Morning, gentlemen. Like your opinion of Devon Energy, DVN. Okay, and do you hold that or looking to buy in that? Looking to buy. It's got a 7% dividend versus my other oil stocks are, you know, close to 5%. Yeah, I, I think we get a lot of oil stocks today with the dividends and so forth. People get excited about those. <clears throat> so let's take a look at the Devon Energy, symbol DVN. They are in the oil and gas E&P industry. 87% uh, institutional ownership. P.E. ratio, 13.2 versus 15.8. That's a positive. Price of sales, 3 versus 2.1. That is not a positive. Valuation ratios, you want them lower than the industry average. The uh, price of tangent book value, 4.3 versus 4.9. And price of cash flow, 7.5. Not bad, but not as good as the industry at 6.3. Peg ratio, 0.9 versus 1.2. That's a, that's a positive. Uh, now, I don't see any earnings per share growth over the past year, and I thought that these oil companies had turned it around. Perhaps they have not reported earnings yet. I, well, I see that the last earnings report was 1231. 
So I don't know why last year we don't have positive earnings for them. I want to check that out. We do see sales were up 153%. That's double the industry. It's 67.8. Five-year earnings per share estimated growth is 10.7. Not as good as the industry at 17.9. You do get a 4.8% dividend. They use 46.9% of their earnings to pay that out. And then looking at the balance sheet, current ratio 1.4. That's the same as the industry. Debt to equity is 70%, also the same as the industry. And then so we have net profit margin here, 23.1 versus 10.8. And return equity, 30.4 versus 14.6. That's very good. Chase, what about going forward? Yeah, real quick, I, I do assume that the, the reason the earnings per share growth isn't there is because 2021, they had positive earnings, but you're comparing it to negative earnings in 2020, so it's not showing a gain on that. Just I don't know why the system doesn't show that because theory it should be a positive, be but positive. I do know since they have a PE ratio that the earnings had to be positive over the last right, 12 months. Right, yeah, so you, you got to dig a little bit deeper. That. Yeah, yeah, so I, I look at that a little closer. And I will say, too, this is an interesting company because this is a pure play on the exploration, development, and production of oil, natural gas, and natural gas liquids. It's not like Chevron and Exxon where they kind of have the refinery and the exploration side or refinery. This is a pure play on the, the E&P side. It says they operate about 5,134 gross wells. So could be good. I am curious on, on their breakdown between oil and natural gas, too, as, as they are a little bit different industries. Looking at the current price, though, for Devin, $55.20, 52-week high, $58.03, and the low, $20.14. No surprise here. Year-to-date return, 25%. So it had a very, very strong start to the year. But 10-year return, negative 8%, obviously, as energy fell earlier uh, this decade, I would say, or mid kind of right. decade, <clears throat> had that big, big uh, pummeling of the energy sector. But if I go out to December 2023, I do see estimated earnings per share of $5.78. Would give us a target sell price of $95.95. So still some estimated growth there, but you do have to be careful in this energy sector because I think you're starting to hit, I'm going to call it peak energy prices, I think, right. this year. I think next year and the following year, it'll stabilize or slightly decline. That is a little bit of a concern if you're looking at buying energy at today's levels. Yeah. So, Wayne, just make sure it's not too much of your portfolio. We, we like the numbers on it, but uh, be careful there. Don't get overexposed to the energy side. All righty? I'm not. Appreciate your help, Joan. Have a good weekend. You too, Wayne. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. All right. That pretty much wraps up the calls. Don't have more time left for the calls. But uh, Chase, it's a comment that uh, a lot of energy calls today uh, and again, I just kind of point out to Wayne, be careful because what people do is they start chasing things. Now, again, it's possible that oil does go up to 150. I don't think this would ever happen, but I would love to see our administration open the spigots, open the oil wells to really drive down the price of oil to fix the world situation and our consumers. Well, it's kind of funny because that would actually hurt a lot of oil companies oh, as well in yeah. terms of their stock prices. Yeah. So I, honestly, I'm not that interested in energy companies right now. I, I think you, you kind of missed the boat a little bit. I, mm -hmm. I think energy prices have gone up so much. Uh, I think you kind of needed to get into it last year, beginning of this year. But uh, right now with oil at the current levels, I, I'd be cautious. Yep. Good closing remarks. Alrighty. There's a, uh, okay. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for information person only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself, Brent Wilsey, or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com for more daily educational information. Along with investment tips, go to our Facebook page, 
Smart Investing with Brent Chase. We'll see. Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. Have a great day. We'll talk more next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. Say